Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. I'm the producer of the show, David Lally, and thanks for tuning in today. I think you'll be glad you did. We're about to hear from Kevin Buffini, the heritage profile expert here at Buffini & Company. He'll share how to go from self-awareness to self-control and ultimately to self-mastery. This was recorded at one of our great live events in sunny San Diego. Let's listen in. Thank you. Thanks very much. You're going to learn some things today about yourselves you didn't know. So I read this book called Managing Oneself by an author called Peter Drucker, and I devoured it. Now, Peter Drucker was the very first consultant. He's published in Harvard Classics. He's written over 37 books, and he was really the godfather of the consulting business. So he's really the very first guy who ever did any kind of consulting, and he stumbled across a couple of areas in heritage. And I'm going to take you through this book to the prism of your own heritage profile because there's some areas in here that I can really shed some light on and bring alive for you. And we'll do that together right now. Now, the first real premise in the book was where can you contribute? Where can you show up? Maybe even after a 20-year career or work career, where can you show up? Where can you find some purpose? Would that be good to have an idea as to where you can find some purpose? The other thing that caught my eye right away was I was doubting whether I should read it any further. One of the first things he said was, not everybody gets to be great. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm not sure about that. And then as I read it, I saw where he was going. So, okay, maybe not everybody gets to be great, but I've been doing profiles for 19 years. I've done 25,000 sessions with people, and I will promise you that everybody has an ability to be gifted. You see, great, as it's assumed now, means that it's going to impact planet Earth. So if I'm ever going to reach my full potential and my full gifted potential, the only way that can be approved of is if I impact planet Earth. Did you guys ever hear of somebody called Susan Boyle? She was a Scottish singer who won England's Got Talent. A gifted, gifted singer. But as soon as she was put in front of planet Earth, it nearly killed a woman. She was an introspective, shy woman. She had no interest in fame or popularity. She just happened to be able to sing, thought it was a bit of a laugh. It nearly killed her. So not everybody's gift is designed to go and impact planet Earth. And that's what he was talking about in the book is that, okay, maybe you won't be Tesla. Maybe you won't be Einstein. But I will tell you that there is an ability for each and every one of you to get to a gifted spot. Now, as a profiler, I will tell you this. I've never met anybody yet who was born gifted. It's about as uncommon as a wise toddler. You see, getting to a gifted spot requires a journey, what we call the journey of abilities. And it happens in three areas. The first one is called the self-awareness phase. The self-awareness phase. Second is called the self-control phase. And then third, we have the self-mastery phase. So self-awareness self-control, and self-mastery. So when you break that down, what that looks like is talents, which we're all born with. Talents, when used, become skills. Skills, when managed, become strengths. And then strengths, when leveraged, become gifts. Talents, when used, become skills. Skills, when managed, become strengths. And strengths, when leveraged, become gifts. Okay? Now... There's three areas in the book that I'm going to help you with the start of this journey so you can become self-aware in three areas. There's more in here, but I only have so much time, and I cover these three fairly easy. The three areas that Drucker brings to light really is, number one, 
what am I good at? When he was consulting for years and years, he realized that a lot of people, in fact, most people don't know what they're good at. What am I good at? Number two, how do I learn? I'm going to spend a lot of time on that one today because it causes fights and problems and issues. And then thirdly, how do I perform? So number one, what am I good at? Number two, how do I learn? And number three, how do I perform? So the very first phase here is the self-awareness phase. When we first start to learn, we have abilities. Now, all of you have some abilities that are in this side of the journey, and you'll have some abilities that are gifted, and everything in between. So one of my talents, one of my abilities in my profile is that of a firefighter. Any other firefighters here? So when you do what you do, and when you're little, it feels good. You start to find out that you have an aptitude for something. You start to find out that you have abilities in this area. You start to find out that you have skills in areas that just start to come easy to you. It's just that you have a bit of an advantage here, and you don't quite know why. And when you do what you do, it feels good. And the little brain starts to pay attention, and we start to build and grow the ability from that moment on. So when I was very little, I can remember being about six or seven years of age, and my mother asking me, could I fix the lamp? I had no idea what I was doing, but I said, sure. So I pulled out the plug, and I opened it, and I put one wire back in and screwed it back in and put it back into the wall, turned the light on, and saved the day. (laughs) I brought light to the Buffini house. So I first became aware that I had that talent to want to ride into my white horse and save the day. When you start to use them, they start to become skills, and then people start to applaud you for it, and then it really starts to take hold in the brain. And we start looking for more opportunities to do it again. We get about 11 million subconscious signals a day that we pay attention to about 60 of them. So an awful lot of who we are and what we do is done on automatic pilot. So everywhere that I could, when I was a kid, I was running around the place looking to see where I could ride into my white horse and save the day. My older brother Gary, he was smoking cigarettes. He wanted cigarettes from the store. I'll get them. (laughs) Actually, it was more like, I'll get them. And then he would do this little evil trick where he would time you. Do you guys ever have siblings who timed you to do stuff? Like for 30 years, they could get me to do anything just by timing me. And I only caught on recently. (laughs) So I start to become aware that I have an ability here. I start to become aware that this feels good. So what happens is our little brains start to look for more opportunities to rinse and repeat that behavior every chance we get. You see, and when you do what you do, it starts to feel good aesthetically, you can get a feeling out of it, or pragmatically, you get a reward. You get something that signifies the outcome of what you were hoping for. Like a competitive kid who wins their first game of tiddlywinks, and they feel the thrill of victory. Starts looking for more opportunities to compete again. Maybe they got a trophy out of it, which signified, do that again. Maybe the parents were there and applauded them. The authority figures in our world who validate us and encourage us said, yay, I'm so proud of you for winning. And the reality was that kid had no awareness of losing yet, had never experienced defeat yet. So that little kid is going to run around all over the place looking for opportunities to compete again. So what are your talents? What are your gifts? Have a look at your profile. What are the abilities that you have there? That'll give you a clue as to where you can start your journey of abilities. So sometimes when you do what you're designed to do, it feels good. And sometimes it's an aesthetic reward, sometimes it's a pragmatic reward, but those are the genesis of the abilities. That's when they start to grow and develop. 
All right. Now, the next part that I want to focus a lot of time with you guys is your learning environment. I have put more marriages back together than I could shake a stick at talking about this next piece in your heritage profile than aesthetic, pragmatics, or anything else we've ever done is your learning environment. Your learning environment. That's why I said I'm not embarrassed to not be a reader. That used to be a point of shame for me. I'm not embarrassed anymore because I know how I learn. Do you? You're about to. All right. So in profiling, we have these terms for your learning environment. Now, the most common one that you guys mostly have in here is kinesthetic, which means you learn by doing. But before that, before you do, how am I going to do? How am I going to think? How am I going to process? How am I going to take this action? And it's broken into two areas that you'll be able to find yourself. You're either more one or the other. And your optimal learning environment is the best environment possible for you to be in to process information. So it's the best environment possible. I can read and learn. It's just not my best environment. Turns out I learn better by talking. I'm getting so smart right now, I can't even tell you. <laughs> my brother Dermot and I, Dermot will bring people together in a room and talk and talk and talk. And they were kind of just props. And by the time they leave, they've all gotten something and so has he. But usually it takes a while for these guys to get warmed up. So for us, we learn very well by talking. So the two types we're going to talk about now is what we call synergistic and analytical people. In the book, Drucker calls them readers and listeners. But that's not quite accurate. Because analytical people aren't always going to pick up a book and read. My father's a very analytical man. You never see him read anything unless it has something to do with Tiger Woods. All the people who have learns in their profile will read just because it's an escape, it's a reward, it's a pleasure, it's nice my time. But they're not planning on doing anything after reading that book. Like, what are you going to do after you read The Hobbit? You're going to book a trip to New Zealand and drop some jewelry off in a mountain someplace? Right, so some people just like to read for the sake of reading. Here's our first one here we're going to talk about is analytical people. These people are designed to think. They love to think. They learn very well by processing information and having time to think. When they have time to think, they give you great decisions. They give you great clarity. So analytical people need time to think. Some more little info on analyticals if you think you might be analytical. They're not much for discussions. They really are only interested in speaking when it's decision time. Sometimes they need privacy or alone time. I couldn't tell you the amount of people I've talked to over the years who were analytical and somewhat independent in their profile. And they would run home to an empty house to get into an empty office, close the door, and then take the call. So they got have absolute privacy in order to concentrate and think. Some of you, it's important in your places of work that you find environments that give you that level of privacy. Otherwise, the distractions start to annoy you. And that doesn't always work at home because you can have the postman and the dog and everything else going on outside. So it's important that you find places for you to lock yourself away and think. Now, Drucker talks an awful lot about readers, as he calls them. And there was one character in here that he raved about, which was General Eisenhower. Now, during the war, General Eisenhower was revered by the media because of his ability to take a question, answer it succinctly. He was very specific, very insightful, and had a, a way with the English language. So the media just raved about the guy. But you see, what was happening was his staff would get the questions about 20 to 30 minutes before every press conference. They would give him the questions. He'd look at them, think it over, think it over, think it over, finally sit, have a chat with the media, and they thought he was brilliant. 
Now, 10 years later, when the war is done and Eisenhower is having press conferences, he doesn't have the luxury of getting the information ahead of time. He has to answer it real time. And the same media who revered him now vilify him. And they used to say he would butcher the English language. He was incoherent. He didn't answer the questions. He rambled on and on and on aimlessly without ever really giving us any answers or any clarity. The only thing that happened was he was never given the information ahead of time. So it's very important for you analytical people that you always gift yourself with time to think or a place to think because you'll come up with much better answers when you do. I had a friend of mine. He works for Homeland Security. He was a profiler for us for about 14 years. He was a Marine, and he was a quiet fellow when he came to us. And what I'd learned about him as we developed a friendship when we worked closely with Heritage was he had developed an insecurity when he was a little boy that he was stupid. Because when he would be asked questions real-time in the classroom, he couldn't respond quick enough. So they start to tease him, or the teacher start to tease him, or the teacher would humiliate him, which doesn't make anybody think any better. So it shut the kid down. So after working with us for about 14 years, I met his mother for the first time. She came over and gives me a big hug. And she says, I can't thank you enough for what you've done for my son. She goes, he has so much confidence, he didn't have that before. I didn't do anything but make him aware. He was already very smart. Now, what's interesting nowadays is they call him the brain in ice. That's his nickname because he's notorious for setting up stings and catching the worst sex offenders and drug traffickers and people who run guns into the country. And he's notorious for setting up these meticulous stings. And he doesn't just have a plan A. He has a plan A, plan B, and plan C. But he would never have become aware of that or given himself permission to enter into a role like that because he's stupid. He's not stupid. He's a brilliant man. All right, the next ones we have here are what we call synergistic people. In the book, Drucker calls these guys listeners. Well, that's not entirely true. It's only partially true. See, they're listening, but what they're listening for is their opportunity to speak again. (laughs) These guys like to play verbal ping pong. You want to go to a movie? Sure, where do you want to go? Let's go see Batman. Okay, what time do you want to go? 7.30, great. 7.30, Batman, they're off to the races. So as long as they have people to play verbal ping-pong with them, they love it. Dermot's great like this. Dermot and I can sit and talk and play verbal ping-pong, and then eventually he comes down with a really good plan. You just have to endure the first 15 minutes when we're just back and forth, but then eventually he'll come up with really, really, really good clarity. So if you haven't had your heritage profile, here's a couple more clues on synergistics to see if you might be more of a synergistic person than analytical. They hate to learn in a vacuum. They hate to learn in a vacuum. They hate being locked away someplace by themselves to figure it out. They like to process information through discussion. They like to collaborate and then eventually make a decision after collaboration is done. They give themselves audible cues, and many times you'll see them talking to themselves. (laughs) I remember being a little boy and asking my father, Daddy, I think there's something wrong with me. He says, I know, son. I said, I haven't told you what it is yet. He said, what is it, son? I said, well, Daddy, I talk to myself a lot. He just laughed. He didn't know I was synergistic. He's analytical. He's probably still thinking about what I said to him. You'll see synergistic people do this all the time. All right, now, what's next? All right, where's my keys? All right, now, where did I put my credit card? All right, let me find my glasses. Oh, they're here. Okay, now, what was I doing? Now, there's no one around. 
So the fact that you can use Bluetooth and things like that nowadays, it's great because nobody thinks they're crazy anymore. All right? So in the old days when you drive down the freeway and you look left and someone's talking to himself, they were crazy. Now they're on their phone. Or are they? I mean, the synergistic people are fun. They're kind of like bats. How does a bat find its way around in the dark? They can't see. They make noise. They throw stuff against inanimate objects. They hear something back and they avoid a wall or they avoid a tree. So a lot of times they're just throwing stuff at you. What happens to a bat who's deaf? Splat. So synergistic people will always need some kind of feedback. They will always need some kind of response. Otherwise, they're telling themselves a story. This part of heritage is quite passionate for me because of how people mislabel this and get this wrong, get intolerant with it, get into fights with it. So the majority of times when I've had to sit with couples over the years, I would have to cover that first so that we didn't misinterpret what was going on. I had coaches training about two years ago. And one of the new coaches, I looked down, she's in tears. Not exactly what I was shooting for in my first week of training the new coaches. I said, what's wrong? She says, I'm analytical. I said, I fail to see the need for tears. She said, my daughter's synergistic. I said, go on, I'm tracking. She starts losing her mind. She's just bawling. She goes, I don't know what to do. Maybe you can help me with it. She goes, I'm a single mom. My husband left us when my daughter was three days old. I decided that I was going to make sure that my daughter wasn't going to miss out on any opportunities like her friends would have. She's going to get to go to school. She's going to get to go to college. We're going to sit down and plan out our trips together. We're going to decide what colleges we're going to go see. And I'm going to make sure that I gift her that. In fact, it's going to be a day I'm going to look forward to in my life. So the big day came. Smart daughter. She gets accepted into three college, Pepperdine, USC, UCLA. Mom gets all the information together and puts it all out on the table and makes a dinner because this was her big day. She'd been looking forward to this for almost 18, 19 years. Junior comes home, has dinner. Mom has it all out there. Every attraction that's in town, the budget, the courses, everything for her to go through. She says, honey, let's have a good discussion about this. Let's figure out what we're going to do so we can get the budget ready to go. I'm so excited. I can't believe you're actually here. I can't believe you've managed to get into schools. We did it. Let's do it. And she goes, not right now, mom, and gets up and excuses herself from the table and leaves. Wasn't exactly the way mom had it played out in her mind all these years. So she tries it again the next morning. She makes breakfast, put all the stuff back out on the table again, sits with the daughter. But now she's a little bit more snippy because her dream was kind of destroyed last night. So now she's a bit snippy. And again, she says, let's discuss this. Let's figure it all out. Now, here's what I was thinking. We could stop by Pepperdine and then go by UCLA. And the daughter's sitting there and she's hearing it all. Then eventually, yeah, not right now, mom. And she gets up and she leaves and goes to school. Now the mom is pissed. This is where I used to come up with feelings without facts creates fiction. Because if you don't have somebody who learns the same way you do and doesn't respond the same way you do, they're the problem. And so you end up having to fill in the blanks yourself as to what's happening during this communication. So here's what the mom did. She said, the boyfriend is turning her against me. So she starts thinking about ways to break them up. And she starts thinking about ways to attack the boyfriend and all of these things. So this is how she was going to fix the problem was to get rid of him. I'm sure that was going to go over really well. So she comes to class and I said, how about this? I said, yes, you're right. Your daughter's analytical. I said, but have you noticed you've been pushing her into a discussion? 
and you've been pushing her to respond and she hasn't and now you're irritated. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell her, send her an email, tell her when she needs to decide by, tell her how much money you have for the budget, the three schools she gets to go to and the attractions that are there and tell her we need to decide by Friday. She goes, that's it? I said, that's it. Sure enough, Friday rolls around. Junior sits down and goes, Mom, we're going to hit Pepperdine, UCLA, and USC. I want to go to Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm. I want to do this, 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 this. And the mother was floored. And the boyfriend was saved. (laughs) Because if people don't respond like we do, we get irritated. We get annoyed with them. We attack them. Because they don't communicate the same way we do. Make sense? All right. Let me play out a little scene for you, analytical and synergistics. Now, you'll get a lot of this in spouses. Actually, it's quite normal. It's more normal to have the opposites of these in a relationship, and it's always kind of quirky and fun. So let's say, in this case, we have a synergistic wife, and we have an analytical husband. And the couple decide that they're going to go and, you know, go shopping, so they walk into Best Buy. And the synergistic wife turns to her husband and goes, Honey, 65-inch TV, it's pure love. We could bring it home, put it above the fireplace. We wanted to have more family time. The boys could bring their friends over. You know, we could get rid of the boys. We could have a little Netflix and chill time ourselves. What do you think? What do you reckon? Huh, huh, huh? Meanwhile, the analytical spouse has looked at the big screen TV, turned to his spouse and went... Now, at this point, spousey is like, fine! Forget I brought it up then. Another stupid idea on my part. Harumph. (laughs) Now, unbeknownst to the synergistic one, there has been a conversation taking place, but it's been a conversation for one. And the conversation is, what are we going to do with that big screen TV we have now? I can't hold that thing up by myself. That's not going to fit in my car. I need to come back with my truck. I'd rather pay credit, not cash. And why is she pissed? Does that sound familiar? You know what? There are couples here that I've talked to. Let me get a microphone to these guys. Now, you're the synergistic one, if I remember, and your wife is the analytical one. Yes. Very. (laughs) 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 Touching nerves. So when did you first encounter this phenomenon, do you think, in your guys' relationship? Probably when we first met. We never started working together until 2013, so I will say that's when it really exposed itself. Right. Now, let me ask you this. Males aren't supposed to feel, and males aren't supposed to be synergistic. We're supposed to be analytical. But this always proves the point that none of these abilities are ever gender-specific. So how does it make you feel when you get nothing back from her ladyship? What goes through your mind? I get pissed. You get pissed. (laughs) Okay, now microphone over to you now that you've had time to think. (sighs) How do you feel when his lordship is yakking at you like that? Exhausted. Exhausted! (laughs) That is such a true common answer I get, it's not even funny. You get tired. You kind of wish they'd do what? Stop. Stop! (laughs) And you're being really nice and PC about that, so I appreciate that. Wait till later. Right. (laughs) Thank you, you guys. Now, stand up. Now, you're the analytical one, right? Yes. And you're the synergistic one. So let's go to you guys. Did that sound familiar to you guys as well, that little scenario? You go first, and he's thinking about it. (laughs) Yes. It did. Now, how does that make you feel when you're talking to him, 
and you probably have your lists because I know you and you have lists or lists. So you show up with a list for him to talk about or to decide about and he gives you Stonewall Jackson. What do you feel right then? Pissed. Pissed. (laughs) (laughs) What do you typically do when you're pissed to get him to respond then? Uh, I'm going to keep talking. Keep talking, yes. Because it's working so well up till now. Maybe if I talk more at him, he'll back down and surrender. Right. Now, same question to you, sir. When her ladyship is asking you questions or asking you for feedback or to decide about a million things on her list, what's going through your mind when she's bombarding you? Yeah, I am constantly saying, can you slow down (laughs) and give me a second to think? And uh, yeah, figure out what in the world you're trying to get at. So. Beautiful. Thank you, guys. Would you guys give these guys a round of applause? Thank you. So this is a very common interaction between spouses. So here's what you need to do. Here's a little housekeeping tip for you. It'll save your marriage. Your synergistic ones, we call it seagull communication. You fly in, you poop on their shoe and fly away again. So what you're doing is you're giving him something to think about. So, what you would probably say is something like, honey, when you get home, it's six o'clock. Now, why did I say six o'clock? I gave him a deadline. I gave him time to think and process. But by six o'clock, could you let me know what you want to do about that big screen TV? Could we buy it? Let me know. I'll see you at home. You analytical people, all you need to do when you're getting this, even a grunt would be better than... But if you just do this, if you just say, you know what, let me think about that for you, it stops them feeling invisible. Nobody in here intentionally tries to make their spouse feel invisible. But that's what happens when we don't communicate the same way, we don't learn the same way. So the goal is to just let him know, let her know, I hear you, let me think about it, and when do you need to know by? That's it. And the more you do that, the easier it is for them to make a decision. You see... He won't want to give you a bad decision by speaking too quickly. He's learned since he was a little boy, or in your case, since you're a little girl, you've learned that the quicker you give an answer, the quicker you can get it wrong. So what they've learned is if I hold my horses for just a minute and think about it longer, I give a better answer. Meanwhile, the synergistic people like Dermot and I are throwing stuff back and forth. We haven't an answer anywhere close in the neighborhood, and we're just throwing stuff back and forth and eventually comes up with some really good clarity. That make sense? All right. Now, the third part in this book, Drucker talks about your performance. We actually have another segment in Heritage called your performance. And your performance is the part of a task that you show the most enthusiasm for. I was consulting with a brokerage in Boston. Broker was pissed off. She keeps turning assistants over. I said, what's the problem? She said, every time I give the assistants tasks to do, they drop the ball, they fall apart, and I just keep turning people over. I said, that's expensive. I said, what part of the task do you give your assistants to do? They said, well, the whole thing. I said, well, then the problem is you. Because not everybody is designed to do an entire task with the same level of enthusiasm from start to finish. Now, Drucker was talking to people who had assistants and corporations, and sometimes it's just me, myself, and I, Inc., So we have to do an awful lot of these tasks. But typically, people are going to show up in two of three areas of their performance. So we call it create, execute, or finalize. Somebody who likes to start, somebody who likes to develop, or somebody who likes to finish. Create, execute, finalize. And in your profile, you're going to be a combination of two of these three. 
for myself, I'm create and I'm finalized. So I like to give birth to a task, but then I don't want to see it again until college. <laughs> Somebody else do all the doing now. Thank you. You might have no create. Maybe you're execute finalized. Maybe you like to develop and finish tasks, but you beat yourself up about how much of a procrastinator you are. You're not a procrastinator. You're a hell of a closer. Maybe you like to create and develop, but you have a tough time what? Finishing. So areas and tasks that you can do naturally, you'll do it better, you'll do it without pay, you'll do it more enthusiasm. And that's where you show up and get some help with the areas you're not good at. I always need people to help me with the middle parts. I always need people to help me with maintaining stuff afterwards too. The start and the finish, I got that, I'm good. But if I can delegate it to somebody who can handle off the middles, we're in great shape. Make sense? But you see, it's kind of countercultural in American culture to work just on your strengths. Americans hate quitters. I found that interesting as a foreigner. They really hate quitters. So it's more cultural in this country to work on your weaknesses. Shore them up. Or you hear stuff from people saying, you know, work on your weaknesses till your weaknesses become your... That is not true. That is not true. If you work on your weaknesses, the best you can hope to be is mediocre. Period. There's nobody in this room interested in being mediocre. You wouldn't be here. Drucker says it better in his book. He said, it takes far more energy and work to improve from incompetence to mediocrity than it takes to improve from first-rate performance to excellence. So what's he saying there? He's basically just saying, work to your strengths. Delegate the weaknesses as much as you can. Work on your strengths. What parts of a task are you designed to do? Check in with yourself. What makes me feel enthusiastic about this task, and what part makes me want to avoid it? What part deflates me? problem is there's 600 and something tasks agents can find themselves doing at any given moment, so it's kind of hard to filter it all. But this will show up in how you do laundry, everything. The parts of the tasks you like to do. You should see my lawn. Lots of seeds, lots of trees, and grass about this tall because I won't maintain it. Okay. Now, the second part of your journey of abilities, whether it's learning about your talents, whether it's learning about how you learn, or whether it's learning about how you perform... They're all going to show up on this journey somewhere. The part we're going to cover now is the self-control part. This is the part everybody at some point inevitably gets stuck. See, self-control, it's really about management. It's not about controlling or having willpower. It's management. And management of your profile means knowing when to use the abilities and when not to use those abilities. That's probably the most important phase on the journey of abilities is what you do with the abilities once you start to discover that you have a skill set for it. Have you ever been around somebody who's funny? Have you ever been around somebody who's trying to be funny? <laughs> right, it has a completely different feel, doesn't it? So when I was learning about my little firefighter in my self-control phase, usually something bad happens. There's a bad moment. There was a bad moment that'll help shape your psyche. We're all born with our nature. And it's shaped in our nurture. So, when I was about seven, eight years of age, I remember when it was actually Christmas Day 1981. We'd always get up early. Dermot would always get me up out of bed first to go down and get the key. So if somebody was going to get beat, nobody never touched the baby. So it was quite strategic on his part. I'd break in, I'd get the key, I'd go downstairs, and there was all the Christmas presents. Now, Brian was always laughed to come down. And I decided that my firefighter was going to save the day here again. And what I would do for Brian is open up all his gifts for him so that he wouldn't have to do it when he comes down. 
And sure enough, about an hour later, Brian comes down, and he's kind of looking for his gift without looking for his gift. You know, he's not wanting to look like he's into all this Christmas stuff, really. But you could tell he was looking to see where his name was on anything, and everybody's opening stuff. And Mom turns to me, she goes, Brian, weren't you opening your present? He goes, what do I get? I said, oh, you got boots, you got a G.I. Joe, you got this, you got that. And he looks at me. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked in the face of death. But I was afraid. So when you first learn control over your abilities, it's usually something bad that's happened. And usually it's kind of like watching R2-D2 taking the ALS ice bucket challenge. It short circuits the brain. The brain's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought this makes you feel good when you do this. What just happened? Well, I just ran into my first bad experience, bad moment using those abilities. Then I decided next day, I went next door to my friend Dylan and his goldfish had died on Christmas Day. But have no fear, Kevo's here. So I see how sad he is. I run home, I grab a pound note, I run down to the pet shop, I grab him a new goldfish, I come home with the goldfish in the bag, I open the door and go, here you go, buddy, you can be happy again. And I felt good. And then I went home to share the news with my mother about how I saved Dylan's Christmas because I wanted to share this good moment, this good feeling that I had. And my mother turns to me and she goes, oh, that's great, Clef. Where'd you get the pound note? I said, out of your purse. (laughs) And then I didn't feel good. (laughs) See, when we start to learn about those abilities, it's typically something bad happens. And here's the problem. Then we tend to not want to use them again. Every time I do this now, something bad happens. I'm not sure I want to run around and help people anymore. Make sense? Self-control has the biggest impact when it impacts a relationship. Drucker talks a lot about relationships and associations in this book. Why is it that your parents paid attention to who you hung out with when you were little boys and girls? They wanted to see who influenced you. When you have relational abilities, people will always influence you. You want to get in shape? Hang out with people who are in shape. You want to get financially straight? Hang out with people who have money. But when there's a relational cost to not managing your abilities, it doubles the negative effect on not wanting to use those abilities anymore. See, I could blame Brian for being mean. I could blame my mother for being mean. But I have to take responsibility for the relationships. Did I manage myself in that interaction? Did they really ask me to help? Or did I just jump another fence and try and save the day? I jumped the fence. And then you have to decide, okay, who's going to get that ability? Who's going to get that strength? Who's going to get that gift from me? Because if all I do is run around looking for opportunities to feel good, I'm going to dilute the impact for the people who deserve to get it. Does that make sense? And they get what's left of you and not the best of you. So who are you loyal to? Who are you loyal to? All you team builders, all you team players, you're all about loyalty. You guys don't do friends. It's more serious than that. You guys do blood brothers. And who did you give your loyalty to? I love loyalty. I think loyalty is probably my favorite trait. I love loyalty and I can't stand blind loyalty. Have you outgrown a group, an office, a relationship, political party? When you give your loyalty to people who don't reciprocate or don't give back that same loyalty, you have to be very intentional about who gets to get me. 
so that everybody who does deserve your loyalty gets the best of you and not what's left of you. Next, who do you give to? This one causes more owies than you can shake a stick at. All the benefactors out there, all the trusted advisors out there, we attract a lot of givers in our group. And givers are tremendous at doing just that, but they're really, really crappy what? Takers and receiving. You want to see a giver when they're getting a compliment. It's like Wonder Woman getting shot at. They're deflecting all over the place. They're so used to giving that receiving actually makes them feel uncomfortable. And inevitably, someone in your relationship, someone in your sphere is going to disappoint you, hurt your feelings, and not give back to you when you needed it. But again, we have to take responsibility for our relationships. And was that me? Did I actually let them know using my words what I needed or was I using my telepathy? You see, the better you are at giving, the better you are at picking up clues. Oh, that person needs something. The benefactors who are all here, you guys always put the bandaid on someone's boo-boo. If I came out here and my face is covered in sweat and I'm red-cheeked, one of you guys would run up and put a glass of water here. I didn't ask for that. You could sense an opportunity to give. So you have to qualify your database with your words. If we don't, we start deleting and evaporating people out of our relationships all the time. The little relational kid, first day in school, goes to sit with someone and relate and connect and sits with someone and goes, hi, want to share a juice box? And that little person says, yeah, sure. And now they're besties. The next day, that little kid decides to go in again and share a juice box with another friend and create another bestie and puts their arm around someone and someone says, take your hands off me. I don't talk to girls. Suddenly that girl got her first little rejection. It leaves a wound. It leaves a scar. It short circuits the brain. What just happened? Why was yesterday the way it's supposed to go and this one was weird? What you look at in the mirror today is what you've chosen to do with your abilities on day three. Is the desire on your heart so strong to go back and connect again? Or is the fear of that rejection and that wound going to stop me from going to engage in more people's interactions going forward? The average male in America past 35 years of age has one friend, one, 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 one friend. I hung out with my nephew and niece this weekend in Disneyland, and I survived. (laughs) Happiest place on earth. I watched a four-year-old make about 35,000 friends in about 11 hours. I found myself avoiding eye contact and trying to get past people and trying to let her talk while pretending I wasn't really with her. And they made friends all over the place. But somewhere along our journey, when we weren't managing ourselves, the cost is always relationships. And finally, our self-mastery. Our third phase in this book, in the journey of abilities. Talents plus skills plus strengths equals your gifts. Talents plus skills plus strengths equals your gifts. Now here's the point. I spoke to a millennial about a month ago. He wanted to know what his purpose should be. (laughs) I said, well, I can give you some starting points, but I will never tell you what your purpose is. That's your journey, and I'd hate to ruin it for you. People need to learn awareness People need to learn control, then they can become masters of it. If I just tell them what they're designed to do, they don't learn any lessons, do they? He told me he wanted to be an influencer. He wanted subscribers. He wanted likes. He wanted his gifts to go viral. But that's the problem. I said, look, lad, I said, there's nothing wrong with your abilities. The problem is you're aiming at the wrong planet. You're trying to impact planet Earth. What you need to be trying to impact is your world. 
And if you compoundly affect enough people in your world, there will be a viral effect, typically. I've done tens of thousands of profiles of people one-on-one that has a viral effect in their homes going forward and the things they're able to pass on to their kids, etc. I wasn't trying to become famous. I wasn't trying to get likes and followers. I just wanted to use my strengths and help that one person in that one moment. Gifts were made for giving. They're not to be hoarded. They're better when they're shared. Here's a great quote from Drucker. I love this. He says, your talent is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back. You have been charged with and are the steward for an incredible profile. What are you doing with it? Who's getting the best of it? Are you scared of it? Have there been moments in your past that caused you to not want to do that anymore? You have to decide who and what you give to is where you find your purpose. Who and what you give to is where you find your purpose. So I qualify my database before I ride into my white horse to save the day now. If your last name ends in I and I, or my two best friends, see I have two, or anybody who happens to be associated with I and I, I will be glad to give the benefits of my strengths to. But that's about it. Because I want to make sure that I'm always giving the best version of me, the highest concentrated version of me to the people who deserve it. Otherwise, if I just run around the place looking to save the day for everybody because it makes me feel good, I dilute the impact for the people I love the most. I try to encourage some of you guys over the years with discovering your own authentic goal. Well, I've always been an animal lover, whether I was buying goldfish for people or all sorts of things. And so about seven years ago, I decided I was going to breed a horse for my niece, Anna, to try to compete on for the 2028 Olympics. I said, Brian can't be around horses. He sneezes and gets red eyes. So maybe I can save the day because I'm better with animals than he is. And then I saw the cost of these bloody things. I'm like, wait a minute, whoa. But it put me on a track to get me out of some depression. It gave me some purpose. It gave me some focus. And it was an authentic goal because there's no one else in this room would have the same goal. Anybody else have a dressage goal that they want to breed a horse for their knees? Right. So when you find something that's yours and you find somebody to give it to, it lights a fire in you. And you're able to turn around and give your gifts to those people. And there is Miss Anna and the horse we got her last year that hopefully turns into something. Now, here's the thing. If it doesn't, my purpose hasn't been unfulfilled because what I was trying to do was fall forward. I'm trying to find a purpose. I'm trying to find direction in my life, which is what Drucker talks about, of things that I'm good at, things that I like to do, things that fulfill me. And then she wrote me a note after I gave her this horse and the little sucker got me and now I want to get her another one. She's a genius, this kid. So I found a way to give my firefighter without getting in trouble with it. And it feels so much better when you can. Well, I hope you learned something. I hope you get to give yourself the freedom to go on a gifted journey. I hope I get to experience those gifts sometime. And I hope I get to see you guys very, very soon. Thank you and God bless. It's great to see you. Insightful as always, Kevin. When you leverage your strengths, they become gifts. The Heritage Profile is one of the many benefits of being a member of our business coaching program. It's an invaluable tool and one of the reasons our clients earn almost 12 times the national average income. Before we finish up today, I'll hand it over to Therese Buffini for a little Irish blessing. May the road rise up to meet you and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. 
And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. <laughs>